Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, actually, I believe it was big swinging dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest, Welcome back to In the House and In the Senate, where we talk to the women of Australian politics about who they are, what they do and why it matters. In the House and in the Senate is supported by Plan International Australia, the charity for girls' equality. As a leading humanitarian organisation working in 80 countries, Plan International Australia tackles poverty and supports communities through crisis. Plan work on some of the most important issues of our time, from gender equality, sexual and reproductive health rights, sexual harassment and action on the climate crisis. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken-Radburn. I'm a former federal and state political staffer passionate about making a positive change in our world. Let's get into today's episode. Senator Larissa Waters is a member of the Australian Greens. She served as a senator for Queensland since 2011. Senator Waters is the co-deputy leader of the Greens with Adam Bant, a position that she's held since 2015. Senator Waters was born in Winnipeg in Canada, where her Australian parents were in Canada working and studying. But she left as an 11-month-year-old baby and grew up in Brisbane. In fact, she momentarily left politics as she was forced to resign in the parliamentary eligibility crisis in 2017 due to her holding Canadian citizenship. Senator Waters has been a leading progressive voice in the federal parliament for almost a decade. She's worked on establishing a Senate inquiry into Australia's domestic violence crisis, the Banking Royal Commission, a royal commission into the abuse of people with a disability, and the transition to renewable energy, amongst lots more. Well, my first question that I usually dive into is... What is a, the day in a life of a senator? So I was wondering, Larissa, what's am I allowed to call you, Larissa? Are we doing yeah, senator please, waters? Please. No, Larissa is fine. <laughs> what what is your what does your day look like today? I think the best thing about the role is that no day is the same, which keeps keeps it interesting. And um, today, like it's it's noon here in Queensland. I think things to be earlier where you are. Um, so the day uh, so far has been a bit less exciting than yesterday. So I'll talk about both. Yeah. But we've just had a meeting of my key staff 
talking about the upcoming parliamentary week and talking about the announcements that we want to make in our portfolio areas, which is women, democracy and the public service and public sector. Um, so we've just done some great sort of policy discussions and thinking about moments in time that we could use to make announcements about the reforms that we want to see, uh, which is my, yeah, that's that's the fun part. But yesterday was probably a more um, representative day. I did some campaigning in Ipswich, which is one of our original towns here in Queensland. And I started off with a pop-up office where constituents can come and ask for help or share the issues that they're concerned about. Um, and I had one lady talk to me about a rail project which is going to stuff up a biodiversity corridor. And another lady talk about her concern with climate inaction and with refugees. So there's a real mixed, like the full gamut of issues get raised. Um, and then I had some meetings with some community groups that are doing fabulous work, mostly with homeless um, service provision. Like there was one guy who's collecting cans um, and getting the 10 cents a can and then funding meals that he's cooking. And he's wow. only a 21-year-old guy. He's just a young boy, basically. And he's, yeah, cooking meals for the homeless and serving them in a local park in Ipswich. So just a total legend. Um, and another wonderful group that are, again, providing services for people that don't have homes because, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of issues with um, housing affordability and it's right across the country. There's so many people. There's women and children who flee violence that have nowhere to go. Um, it's a real problem and it's something that the federal government could and should do more about, but they're not. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, and then I had a fabulous meeting with the First Nations mob um, in a particular area of um, just out of Ipswich where massive housing company wants to put um, a, a development essentially right on an important burial ground, right. which, you know, it's 2021. That mm -hmm. would never be okay, but it's certainly not okay yes. now. So, yeah, navigating a whole lot of um, issues there because obviously we need housing, but we don't need private housing companies making squillions off um uh, fancy units put on the sites of, of important Indigenous sacred places. It makes so yeah, that was my day yesterday. It makes a it's lot of a, sense. It's a real <laughs> I think the reason why I love asking that question, Larissa, is because I think that people, I think a lot of people out there in the general public have this perception that like parliamentarians are in Canberra doing the question times and then Ugh. they just like day to day aren't really doing much. But yeah, I love maybe. that. I imagine, like, tell me about that community engagement element. I imagine that that would be something that you probably love most about your job it is yeah it's it is my favorite part because honestly parliament is the worst mm. um, obviously it's really important and it's the decision making forum that we've got and um you know and I value the opportunity that I've got to make change through that vehicle but the culture is terrible and the you know I, I don't have a lot in common with the people from that I sit in that room with um yeah it's a it's a real contrast to the the goodness that you get exposed to when you do community campaigning and when you get out there and see it really restores my faith in humanity basically the best thing after a, a hard fortnight of parliament sittings is for me to get out to a few charities and just learn about what they do and that makes me think it's okay the future is going to be fine because people are good yes. and there is enough community spirit out there that counteracts the the self-interest and the greed and the patriarchy um, and the privilege of most of the old white guys in parliament I usually get to this towards the end of the episode, but we're here now. What do you think are the elements of Parliament at the moment that make it a not nice place to be? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's still male-dominated. We are making progress in that regard. And in the Senate where I sit, we're actually now majority women, which is amazing. And the even nicer thing about that is that we became majority women when a First Nations woman um, joined us about a year ago. So that's pretty cool. Um, so I think the culture is a little better in the Senate than it is in the House. But overall, the culture of the place, as you know, it's still very blokey. It's still very hierarchical. It's still very nasty and it's very power and ego driven. And it's just, you know, that's not really my bag. It's, yeah. not, it's not what I think politics should be. I think politics should be about service and it should be about listening to what the real problems are and then fixing them collectively uh, and, yeah, acting in the public interest rather than, you know, going out for a fancy lunch and then doing the bidding of whatever that big donor just told you to do. So I think that, yeah, reality and my hope for politics are still quite different. Um, so, yeah, then we need to change a lot of that culture. A lot of it's the patriarchy. A lot of it's just tradition. And, um, yeah, it's also not really a safe place for women, as people will have heard about through the news. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that we could fix in that regard too. But I think getting more women in there is the first thing to do to change the culture. And then fixing up the complaint structures, making sure that there's actual codes of conduct to guide members of parliament because there isn't one at the moment. And so you get complete doofuses acting yeah. like pork props mm. and saying stupid stuff that's divisive or racist or hurtful or sexist, like not on. It wouldn't be acceptable in any other workplace. It shouldn't be acceptable in the frigging decision-making heartland of the nation. Yeah, so there's a lot of... There's a lot of kind of institutional changes that could be made, but I think fundamentally it's a cultural change that's required and I think getting more women in there and getting more people from different backgrounds, not all um, lawyers and not all sort of private school educated people. I think we need a real variety of folk representing the community because it is meant to be a representative democracy and lived experience really matters and we don't have enough of that in the ranks in Parliament at the moment. Larissa, I want to take you back to the very beginning and what initially sort of got you thinking about politics, got you involved. What what were those passions that made you think, wow, I'm really passionate about this and mm. politics is a way that I could make change? Yeah, that is, that is exactly what happened, Alicia, because I've never been interested in politics as a young person. I wasn't involved in any student politics. I was yeah, at the pub playing pool or, or studying. I mean, so no, was I, but I was also yeah. unfortunately a student politician. <laughs> you can do both. There's a place for all of that. Um, but no, I, I trained as an environmental lawyer and I worked for 10 years giving advice to the community on how to protect the planet. And it became increasingly clear to me that the laws were not in fact designed to protect the environment. They were there to facilitate development and to essentially confirm the status quo of big corporates getting their way. And that became increasingly challenging because, you know, I think we need to have a far more sustainable relationship with the natural world. And, um, yeah, I realised, well, you, you actually need better laws if you want to achieve these outcomes. And so I naively thought that that would be an easy thing to fix because I knew nothing about politics and how the pace of change is actually glacial. Mm. Um, and I just had a friend who had been a client um, who was working for the Wilderness Society and I'd given him some advice about tree clearing and he then got involved with the Greens and became our campaign coordinator in Queensland. 
And then he approached me and said, look, we're desperate for someone to run against the Premier in the state election. And I'm like, oh, my God, lol. Was that Campbell Newman? No, at the time it was Peter Beattie. So oh, this is Peter Beattie, yeah, sorry, two bald men. <laughs> sorry, two, I know, it's so many to choose from. <laughs> okay, yeah, Peter Beattie. bald guys. Yeah. So I, I laughed at first because I'd never done anything like that. It seemed like such a, such a big deal and I was only, what, 27 or 28 or something at the time. Um, but then he came back a couple of weeks later and said, no, we really are desperate. Can you please think about it? And I, I had a talk with my wonderful boss at the time, a really strong woman. I've had the benefit of fabulous female mentors in my, in my legal career. And we talked about, well, why do we do what we do? It's to make positive change. And I thought, well, this is another way of making positive change. And if you've got this opportunity, then why not try it and see if you like it? And I did. I really loved it. I loved campaigning. I loved talking with people about the things that they were concerned about. And, yeah, care for the planet, care for people, and a fairer sort of society kept coming up as things that people wanted from their democracy. And I'm like, totally, that I agree. And it was very affirming. So I, I kept going and um, ultimately got elected. Um, had a baby in the meantime. But, yeah, I sort of got the bug and felt like this would be a really useful way of making change. But I must confess, I sort of smile wryly at my naivety because I've been doing this role for, you know, almost 10 years now and I have made some change, but it's often very hard to measure and I feel like the country's gone quite backwards Mm. on a lot of the things that I really care about, like gender equality and climate change and um, wealth inequality. So it's, it's challenging um, and I hope that we see a change at the coming election and start to, yeah, treat each other better and treat the planet better and um, do the things that I think the country wants us to do. The way that you spoke about the planet in your maiden speech to parliament, your first speech to parliament, was just in a way that I've sort of never heard I, I like. I'm sure that there are other similar speeches out there, but you know, you quoted Hamlet, and you just speak about our world with such a tenderness and reverence that I oh. found really inspiring to watch. And so, I'm wondering what sort of gave you, like, what shaped you to think about our world and the environment in that way. Oh, I'm so glad you had that reaction. Thank you, Alicia. You must, you must be a nature lover too. <laughs> I just feel like, you know, we're so obsessed with the things that don't really matter as a society and I find it really nourishing to get back to nature and to just, it's going to sound really, really daggy, but, you know, I just, I love just looking at, at you know, my, I'm gardening now, I'm loving watching my plants grow. I get a lot of peace and, um, and solace from just feeling insignificant in this amazing world that we live in. It helps me as an individual and I suspect that other people feel that same sense of nourishment and awe and insignificance as well. So I, I, it's probably my folks that raised me with that. They're, they're bushwalkers, they're nature lovers and mum's a real animal lover. So I've, I've sort of had that ingrained respect for the natural world as I've grown up and thankfully I haven't lost it yet and hopefully I, I don't ever. I know that it might sound silly to some people, but I so resonate with your with talking about gardening because I know that, and I hope that a lot of people felt this through 
through the you know 2020 COVID I know that so many of us are still you know Melbourne and Sydney are still in the grips but I know that when I was locked down here in Western Australia last year I did gardening as well and almost amongst the amongst I've you know I'm 28 like I hadn't really I haven't really lived in I've been in like share houses down the road from Sydney Uni that like could hardly grow a piece of grass rather than like a nice garden and so I, I tried it out and amongst the chaos and sort of anxiety that was within the world is within the world it's so amazing to plant something and come back a week two weeks later and see a yeah. sprout and then it grow Yes, I totally agree. I think COVID has made gardeners of us all, at least those of us lucky enough to have a little patch of earth or a balcony that you can stick a pot on. And yeah, it's the it's that process of growth. I too, I just think it's it's like it's a miracle. I, I'm not a religious person, yeah. but I think of it as miraculous. Um, and something's eating my cucumber seedlings at the very minute, and I'm determined to work out what it is. We'll need to do like kitchen cabinet, but with for like <laughs> with Costa on Gardening Australia, just gardening, different polys. Gardening gas or something, yeah, <laughs> totally. I love it. So taking you back to, I, you sort of alluded to it that um, my my next question is usually how did those passions that you had for the environment, for, you know, wanting to address wealth inequality in our world. How have those passions translated into politics? And you've sort of alluded to the, the fact that it yeah. can be glacial and kind of frustrating. What what has that, how have you felt coming into parliament and wanting, like being bursting to make change? Yeah. Do you feel like it's possible? Look, uh, you know, I think COVID has been really interesting, Alicia. Obviously, it's been shit for a lot of people, for most people. But what I found very interesting is that all of a sudden things that were politically seen as impossible became possible. And JobKeeper is a good example, which is obviously the wage support package for people that obviously got rorted by a few of the big companies and sadly the government's not pursuing them to give the money back. But I won't go down that rabbit hole. The point is it's inconceivable that prior to COVID, a Liberal government would have handed out money to people who actually needed it. That's just not who they give money to normally. And so I think COVID really reshaped the, I call it the Overton window, what's politically possible to achieve. And I take great heart from that because um, I still want to see the back of this awful government. But it made me think we can talk with people in the community now about actually they can have the things that they want out of a government. They can actually have services like go to the hospital and not have to wait eight hours in the waiting room or be ramped because there's not enough hospital beds. Like all of these things are political decisions and likewise poverty is a political decision. Um, They ended up doubling JobSeeker during the pandemic, which is essentially the new name for for Social Security, the Mm -hmm. doll, and it made a real difference. Like people weren't having to choose between do I buy that textbook for my little one or do do I have dinner tonight? And people were able to buy fresh fruit and veggies for the first time. And it's those sort of impacts that political decisions can have that this government is actively choosing um, to not make. And COVID really laid that bare, I thought, made that obvious that we could fix all of these problems. It's just the political will that's lacking. There's no sort of technological barrier or constitutional barrier or any other reason to not act on the climate, fix wealth inequality. Um, have some more women making decisions. So I take comfort from the fact that the community's got a taste now of what they can get from from politics 
And I live in hope that they will keep demanding that at the ballot box and that we'll have a different government, that we'll have more Greens and that we'll be able to push the next government to go further and harder on responding to the climate crisis, on fixing that wealth inequality, on funding health and education and getting out of coal and transitioning to renewables, all those things that, you know, I really think we need to do and that we're running out of time to do. So that's what gives me hope. The frustration is that it's very male-dominated and they seem to just deliver for the 1% and for the people that donate to them. That really just its so deeply wrong um, and we want to get big money out of politics completely because decisions shouldn't be made by big donors. That's not how democracy is meant to work. So this, the frustration is in the, um, you know, the dichotomy between what, what should be happening and what is happening but the hope is that change is possible. And I think the thing that a lot of the decision makers, particularly those, I mean, I'm not sure how many would have lived experience, if any, of poverty, but taking yeah, you to the job many. seeker, like I think what a lot of people don't realise is if you if you increase something like social security, like job seeker, it actually enables people to get out of the cycle of poverty because exactly. then their decision, then they're, then they're not fixated on those decisions between a textbook or food on the table and yes. they can extend their headspace to other things in their world and help them mm-hmm. get out of poverty. So totally. it, I I agree with you that's been one of the things that I've seen through COVID that I was just like wow we can it it can happen there's sort of no excuse exactly what are you proud of in your like you know you've nearly been there for a decade what what are you proud of of achieving him look I'm proud of giving voice to um, status quo challenging ideas that I don't think should be status quo challenging I think actually a lot of the things that the Greens propose are very mainstream, like that people should have access to healthcare when they need it, that um, every child, no matter where they live, can access a good quality public education with enough teachers in the classroom to do the job, um, that we have an investment in clean energy, not, not coal that's hurting workers and trashing the planet. Like a lot of that makes perfect sense to me, but it hasn't always been politically palatable. So I'm proud of the role that that me, but more so my party has played in giving voice to those values that haven't been in the majority in the parliament, even though I think they're in the majority in the community. But I'm also, I mean, on the on the smaller stuff, I'm proud to have at one point been young and been in politics. I don't feel like I can say I'm a young person anymore, but I'm proud to have been a young woman in politics and I'm proud to have breastfed my baby in the chamber. Um, Iconic. I, I don't think you've got kids yet, but like, Babies need to eat yes. and if the boobs are working and you're able to breastfeed, you just feed them when they're hungry or they scream their heads off. It's not it's not like, oh, no, honey, you've got to wait until I'm finished. That's not how yeah. babies work. So, I, yeah, I just fed my baby because she was hungry. And it, I've had a lot of women say that that's really helped them and it's really empowered them to publicly breastfeed, which is marvellous because, of course, you should be able to feed your baby wherever you are. It's nobody else's business. It's just like once again sexualizing women and and objectifying women. Like just leave us alone. We we got a job to do. I think that was my favorite thing of I I, I think maybe it was in a New York Times interview that you did um, post. You know, it just 
you know, back then, what was 2017? Yeah, it must have been. Was it 2017? Yeah, she's four now. It was 2017. And I loved your response because I think it's, it's just so, it's the best response where you were like, I, look, I appreciate that this is all, you know, this has captured the hearts and minds of many people and everyone's like, yeah, hell yeah, you should be breastfeeding your baby in parliament. But you were, your response was basically like, this isn't radical. Like, this isn't some but, radical yeah. notion. This is an everyday thing that yeah. shouldn't, like, you know, hopefully one day it isn't this viral sensation because it just mm. happens and it's not like this wow novel a woman exactly. is feeding her child. Yeah, because women belong in parliament. How did we you have kids? So like get used to it people. How did you feel about that moment sort of, you know, when you google Senator Larissa Waters now, like it's everywhere. How do you, how, how yeah. was that for you? Oh, well, look, it, it was just a bit weird because as you and I have just discussed it just seems like the most normal thing. And again, I'm conscious that not everyone can breastfeed, but if you're if you're lucky enough that you can, it's it's just you don't give it a second thought. So I was sort of bemused that it was seen as a political act, but I was also really heartened that women women have taken heart from it. And I still occasionally get you know Instagram posts or or messages from women, um, often from other countries, saying that it was really meaningful for them. And that's that's what I'm grateful for. I I, I want to. I want to do what I can to help make change. And, yeah, when you get positive affirmation like that, it's very, it's sort of surprising and humbling but lovely all at once. And, you know, as much as it should be an everyday act, sometimes it does take a role model and a representative in our community to do something on a big stage as Parliament is to, to normalise it. Yeah, to affirm that yeah. this is an everyday act and everyone should yeah. be doing this everywhere and not feel any shame or judgment yeah. around it. Yeah. Um, taking you to, you, you sort of spoke about how a lot of your ideas and the, green, the, the policies of the Greens, you know, you don't see them as radical, but obviously mm-hmm. there's a lot of sort of rhetoric in political analysis in the media that like greens are fringe and radical and you know what what do you think have have you felt much judgment around your policy positions and how have you sort of worked through that yeah I think it's changing Alicia I think that like 10 years ago um more people thought that Mm. But I think as we get more Greens elected and there's like four of us in Queensland now and hopefully more after the next election, people realise that we're just ordinary, sensible people Mm -hmm. and we've just got some ideas that like push the barriers a bit. So, I mean, I don't want to downplay that they're transformative proposals, but like they'll only benefit people and they'll benefit the planet and the only people that they will hurt are those who are in big corporations and, you know, fossil fuel companies and you know they can look after themselves so I think probably it's um the the branding of the greens as somehow fringe or niche is a technique that the right-wing press like Mm -hmm. to use but I don't think that ordinary people think about Mm -hmm. us like that anymore because they see the work we do and they see that we stand up for ordinary people um, and nature and like they they quite like that and they know that we're not for sale because we don't take those big donations from corporates or you know whoever so I think actually that's just a right-wing trope that the you know 
too concentrated media ownership people love to trot mm-hmm. out. But I think it just increasingly makes them look hysterical and out of touch. Well, it's so interesting to reflect on your first speech because you're talking about you know, caring for our reef and renewable energies. Mm. And now we're here in 2021 and it all also checks out from an economic point of view as well. Like renewables are the way forward. They're cheaper and they can provide reliable base load and jobs. And so it's quite amazing. Like I think that's something that you should be really proud of, sort of putting forward these ideas a decade before you know, maybe some branded yeah. them as fringe ideas and now they are the norm. Yeah, thank you. That is, that is a good, that's a good perspective to take because we often feel like, yeah, we make a suggestion, we get laughed at and then, yeah, the years mm. pass and then one of the big parties picks up the policy and then sometimes even the other one does too and, you know, then we get written out of the story. But if that's how change is going to be achieved, so be it. Like we're here not for glory, we're here to get outcomes. So, yeah, it is interesting to see how public perception about issues can change and how the science, because a lot of our policies are based on science, particularly our climate policies, that the word can get out about this being actually what science says is necessary but also really beneficial economically how? and that you don't have to make that choice yes. between the environment and the economy. For heaven's sake, that is such an outdated notion. It mm. was never true and it's being proven every day to be not true, the economic prosperity of the future comes in renewables and the rest of the world knows that. And that's why they're stopping buying out fossil fuels. And it's it's this crazy government that is so in hock to the big mining companies that is just not getting the memo. And, like, everybody else has got the memo. So, yeah, get out of the way or get with the program. How do you... Ideally, get out of the way. <laughs> How do you view the sort of future of your political career and what are you hoping that you can sort of, you've already left Parliament with such a legacy and Australia with such a legacy, what are you hoping for for the next few years and what if you could achieve one more thing in Parliament, what would that be? Well, thank you for the compliments, Alicia. It's, um, yeah, I feel like I'm just one of many people trying to make change, so it's, Thank you for for saying nice things. Um, I've never really aspired to anything more than what I currently am doing. I'm not I'm not interested in um, sort of personal aggrandizement. But what I want to achieve is good climate policy. I mean, I want to achieve gender equality as well. There's lots of things I want to achieve. But if you ask me what is the most important thing that I want to get out of my remaining time in politics, it's proper climate policy. Because if we don't fix that, we are all screwed and we have the ability to fix it and we've got the technology and it's going to be good for jobs and it's going to be good for our reef and for the planet. Like There is no downside to finally planning for that transition. Um, Hand in hand with those communities that currently rely on coal, Like let's work with them and plan what's next for them. What are the industries of the future that keeps them in work and work that's not giving them black lung disease like many coal Mm. miners are now facing? Like, let's do that planning work and and make that transition happen. If I could be part of a fresh government that tackles that, then I will, I could leave Parliament with a smile on my face. What does good climate policy look like to you? Science-based. And at the minute, we've got targets that are, there's no sugarcoating it. They are shit. They Mm -hmm. are shitter than shit. 
They are not at all what needs to be um, at the level they need to be. Uh, the IPCC report that just came out about well, two months ago says that if we want to have a chance of keeping the world kind of like it is right now, we need three times as much reduction in our emissions by 2030 than what this government proposes. And if we want to keep climate change to two degrees, which is still the loss of the Great Barrier Reef and it's still a massive impact on the natural world and on people's health, like people are already dying from heat waves and bushfires mm -hmm. are already scary as hell. So even two degrees isn't safe. But if we want to get to two degrees, we have to um, double the targets that we've got. So, you know, halve our emissions effectively. But again, the government's like having a war with the National Party about how much money we can give to coal mines. And it's just, I'm incredulous mm. at the standard of debate about the issue. Listen to the scientists, go and talk with communities, plan with them about exiting fossil fuels, get all of this fabulous um, prosperity, uh, make renewable energy our next export boom. Like, make this happen. This is this is not just for the planet. This can make money for you people who seem to be so motivated by money. But, yeah, it's it's not happening because of those big mining company donations to the big political parties, which we would love to see banned. No more big money making decisions that are bad for the planet and bad for people. Taking us back to Parliament and the culture in Parliament, you mentioned sort of a lever that we can pull is getting more women into Parliament mm. um, and what we really need to do is we need to – it needs to be a cultural change in Parliament – other than electing more women, what do you think are going to be the big things that drive that cultural change? Because at the moment, mm -hmm. as a woman who has worked in politics, as just a woman in society who is consuming all of these reports, 7.30, Daily Telegraph, day mm -hmm. on, day out, um, it's just, it feels like one of the major mechanisms right now is women keeping the pressure on so change yeah. is forced, but obviously that places the burden on this exercise on women. And I'm wondering if there yeah. are other, like, obviously that plays a role. Organising plays a role, campaigning plays a role, keeping mm. the pressure on is important. What are the mm. other levers that we can pull to create that cultural change in Parliament? Yeah, that's such a great question, Alicia. And you're right to acknowledge that it's still having to, be done by us women and it's really triggering it has been a hard year for so many people not just because of COVID like it was already challenging because people's economic insecurity is off the charts no one knows what the future holds because the climate's in meltdown like it was already a rough time and then you had amazingly brave people like Brittany Higgins after other amazingly brave people like um, Chelsea Potter and mm -hmm. Dania Marnie yeah. and like any number of others who have essentially blown the whistle about the criminal revolting treatment of women in political spheres and um yeah that's been immensely triggering for a lot of people but it feels like that's that's almost the price that you have to pay that's what you've got to bear in order to keep this moment happening so that we can force that change but I just want to acknowledge that that is not without emotional pressure and like people like Brittany mm -hmm. and everyone supporting her and really anyone who's been in a similar situation it's yeah it's triggering and 
there's not a woman I know that hasn't been harassed, whether it's at work or on the street, mm-hmm. and, you know, of varying degrees. But this is a real issue no matter what industry or workplace or, you know, or town you're in. So um, it's just, yeah, so I thank you for acknowledging that the work is hard even though it's necessary. And so what more can we do? Well, yeah, passionate people should speak out mm-hmm. and draw strength from each other. One of the most heartening moments that I've had this year was going to the March for Justice. I got to go to the Canberra one and Brittany actually mm-hmm. came along to that and the vibe of the gathering there, like there was thousands of people. We just walked out of Parliament. We all walked out. Um, and to feel like we were part of a mass movement demanding change was the most uplifting thing. It was a glorious day. It was a very healing day to feel like there were so many people demanding change that change just had to be inevitable. But change is not inevitable and um, how soon the media can stop turning its attention on these issues or burn people out Mm -hmm. or, yeah, the the patriarchy endures and it's a task for all of us to keep trying to pull it down. So, yeah, I talked earlier about the things that I thought we could do in Parliament to change change the structures. It's not even an independent complaints body. As you probably know, when you work as a parliamentary staff member, um, you can complain to the Department of Finance. There's some like bizarre rando process which, like, no one knows about. And, hey, presto, if your harasser is your boss who happens to be an MP, the Department of Finance can't touch them. There's no consequences. So it's like what a bullshit process we've got at the moment. It's no wonder people don't use it. A, they don't know about it, and B, they know that, sadly, it's not going to actually lead to anything. So all of that pressure has built to a review being ordered by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, who is fabulous and doing great work. And she looked at sexual harassment in the workplace more broadly and issued a report that said it's rife, it's really bad for young women, particularly in the retail sector, and here are 55 ways that you can improve it. Um, and then we've uh, the government's partially legislated some of those recommendations, good, but kind of left out the main one, which was let's make it a positive duty and obligation on employers to provide a safe workplace, which is, of course, all about prevention. Um, And the government hates doing anything proactive about women. It's happy to mop up and try to get it off the front page, but it doesn't actually want to fix the problem. Anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying um, the issues on the legislative agenda, and it led to Kate Jenkins being charged with looking into Parliament House as a workplace specifically. And I can't wait to read her report because she is the woman that knows the solutions and I'm really interested to see what her recommendations will be about, given that Parliament's got some peculiarities because we're bound by constitutional um, parameters and given that, you know, you can't be fired as an MP except by the people that voted for you. It's just a very interesting way of trying to work out how do you design consequences so that MPs are not harassing their staff or other people's staff or just like being co- complete creep like so many of those liberal ministers have been um, or you know have actual rapes happen in the building it's just horrific so yeah okay. waiting to see what the Jenkins report says a lot could be done but so far I think the government's motivation is to depoliticize it and to try to look like they're less bad towards women I'm not yet convinced that they genuinely want to fix the problem because it's the right thing to do. Which is a problem. Mm. Um, Let's hope they're not the government anymore (laughs) and we can have people with the Greens in there that, yeah, actually want to do the right thing. Understandably, 
you know, after what all we've spoken about, I I worry that young women who are political who are thinking about politics, mm. who are passionate about the world, like you mentioned in mm. your first speech that you had a screensaver that said make a difference. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of people share young women particularly, like I've spoken about this on the podcast before. I feel like particularly I noticed it in student politics that men uh, men and boys join these like sort of youth political organizations because they want to be prime minister and the women join because they want to make a difference and they see it as an outlet for them to be able to do that um i'm nervous that women will look at all of this and just say Mm. nah fuck that basically Mm. i'm not gonna go it's not for me i'm gonna go make change in an ngo or you know as you were um, before politics, if you had one piece of advice or wisdom ha- for women thinking mm. about politics, what would that be? It would be do it. You belong there and we need you there. Uh, that would be it really. But I do think it's very wise what you've said about change can be made in any number of ways. And the NGO sectors really does amazing work. Our frontline health workers and like midwives and teachers, like there's a lot of amazing people that make change and make the world better. So if your motivation is to improve the world, firstly, yay you, that's a wonderful motivation. And you can really do that in many ways. But if you want to make systemic change rather than like fix little examples of problems, if you want to fix the problems and stop them from happening, then politics, you need to change the laws and it's the politicians that make the laws. So politics is very powerful as a change-making tool and I would guess I would reassure young women that it's not all like question time. In fact, question time is the absolute worst and it is the it is the distillation of all of the ego and all of the confected outrage it's like that's actually not really what the place feels like thank goodness because it's yeah I reckon you could just they don't answer the questions anyway so it really feels like a waste of time like the concept of a Dorothy Dixer to me is like just bizarre (laughs) I know right like you are the government you've got other channels do not waste question time spruiking your own wares Anyway, so I would say don't be discouraged and that politics is a place for you. Young women belong in decision-making roles, whether that's in the parliament, whether that's in organisations, in communities, in businesses. Like Women belong at the decision-making table, young women in particular, women of colour in particular. So I would say please find the courage and find the support to back yourself. I often say, oh, to have the courage of a mediocre white man because they don't seem to have a problem with confidence, but many incredibly competent women that I know often have a lot of self-doubt. Just do what you can to surmount that and put yourself forward because it is an important way of making change and the country needs better representatives. Thank you so much for making the time this morning, Larissa. I really, really appreciate it. And I just have to mention that um, you were like, easily the most requested podcast guest my dms my messages comments it was all senator larissa waters so i think that there would be there'll be a lot of people coming to the end of this podcast so grateful to have heard your thoughts and feeling really you know ready to get involved I'm so pleased. Well, and good on you again, Alicia, for using the platform that you've got to get more people and young women in particular interested in politics. 
because it shapes everything. It affects every aspect of our life. And if you think it doesn't, then you're probably doing okay and you should check your privilege. Totally. You just summarised it in one sentence. In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at In the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing, and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at Alicia.AikenRadburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye to <laughs> Next question. <laughs> See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.